You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kelly. And you're listening to episode 27, Mullet Sexual, or The Lost Boys, directed by Joel Schumacher. So uh, before we begin, I'd just like to point out, it occurred to me, that we have finally um, completed the What We Do in the Shadows origin stories movies. I mean, if you look at the main four, you've got Nosferatu, you've got Bram Stoker's Dracula, you've got Interview with the Vampire, and now you've got The Lost Boys. Plus, we also did Twilight, if we need to include the... Hey, guys, I'm Twilight. I'm Twilight. I, 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 think, I think we've completed our mission. No more podcasts. We're done. <laughs> Let's move on to the werewolf-themed one for um, werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> I think Taika Waititi right now is a little busy. So we won't be getting that for a while. He does have some fabulous pineapple shirts and a pineapple romper. I was very impressed. Plus he has a really good trailer for the Thor movie. It's very good. But he has has claimed that the dialogue has been 80% improvised, which is going to be incredibly good fun. (laughs) Yeah, but he's also said a whole bunch of weird stuff. I think he's like working with Australians like Naomi Watts and there's a picture of Kate Blanchett. Yeah, I like that one as well. And I like all the people in the comments who were like, uh, excuse you. And it's like, it's a joke. Gosh, a comedic director and comedic writer and director made a joke. What is the world coming to? I was very proud that he made the Pajama 10 this year because he was the guy that I did the For Your Consideration campaign for. So I actually managed to convince enough of our readers to vote for him, which was good. And it did. I don't know. Okay, back to the actual topic at hand, The Lost Boys. Or the other 80s vampire movie that is so, 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 so 80s. I think this may be the most 80s thing ever committed to uh, cinema. Just In the best way possible. Like in the background and the constant music. There was like just music everywhere. And then the weird sex scene with the flying through the clouds. Not that they were having sex flying through the clouds, but it's like, the, and we fade to black, except it said we fade to flying through the clouds. I mean, in case you, you, you could, if you, even if you hadn't known that this was directed by Joel Schumacher, I feel like you just instinctively know. <laughs> there are no bat nipples here, but everything else Joel Schumacher is here. Like half of this is already on its way to being Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> In case you couldn't tell, Joel Schumacher used to be a production designer before he was a director. So it's all over this film. So recap? Sure. So uh, Lost Boys is a 1987 film uh, starring the two Corys, uh, Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Diane Weist and Edward Herman and Jamie Gertz. Uh, It's about a family, a single mother and her two kids who moved back to her father's house in Santa Carla, the murder capital of the world after a divorce, and the boys later find out that it's actually populated by roaming bands of vampires. Basically, teenagers are assholes with fangs. Oh yeah, I mean, the mullet on Kiefer Sutherland in this movie <laughs> is its own entity. I'm, I'm flash- having flashbacks to that um, Treehouse of Horror where um, Homer gets Snake's hair transplanted. Yes. <laughs> it is so close to that. A lot of the film is that sort of, you know, the very expected 
you know, fighting the urge to give in to the temptation of vampirism because the older brother Michael, who's called Michael Emerson, which I ended up finding really distracting watching this film now, because um, I kept expecting the guy from Lost, but it's obviously not him. Uh, but he is sort of invited into the the main uh, band of vampires. Partly through the head vampire David, played by Kiefer Sutherland, and partly through his girlfriend Star, because of course she's called Star, played by Jamie Gertz. And then there's the, the tug of war of power as he is on his way to becoming a vampire, but not until he makes his first kill and he has to resist that temptation. And then there's a lot of music, and then there's this really well-oiled guy playing the saxophone, seemingly for no reason, but you know, it doesn't really matter. We'll get to that guy, because there's a whole other can of worms that we need to get to with that guy, who is so well-oiled, and I need to meet the person that oiled him. Yeah, I'm like, how much were they paid, or did they pay to have the job? That's one of the questions. Well, that guy's Tim Capello, who used to apparently play saxophone for Cher. Because of course he did. What's more 80s than this film? Playing saxophone for Cher. Basically, this movie is someone who's like, okay, let's make Peter Pan, but with vampires. Actually, we can't really do a lot of stuff with really small children. Let's make them into asshole teens and add a really awkward sex scene with clouds. And also a probably about 14-year-old boy in the bathtub for a really long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could talk about the, the homosexual subtext of this film for days. This is a... We, we've talked about that as a, a common vampirism metaphor before, but I don't think it's been as blatant as it has been, just in terms of the stuff that we have talked about. And I'm not saying that's entirely because Jill Schumacher is a big fan of that particular kind of subtext as a gay man himself, but I think it's a big driving part. Uh, has anybody seen Batman and Robin? Yeah. <laughs> I am so sorry to everyone else who has watched it. It's it's something else. I think I've seen it about um, a dozen times, actually. It's a great bad movie. It does feature one of my all-time favourite bad lines. There's a moment where, I can't even remember what the scene is, but Mr. Freeze is sort of in battle, and he turns around and goes, Don't forget to winterize your pipes! <laughs> Written by an Oscar winner, guys. What killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age! <sighs> hey, honestly, I would take Batman and Robin over what the hell they've been doing in DC at some, some time. And lo, the ballad of Sad Affleck continues. <laughs> Sad Fleck. Okay, so I have to ask, did you... um, Had you seen this film before? No. So this was totally new to me. This is interesting, because I've seen this film many, many times because it's one of my mum's favourite movies. Your mother has some really interesting ideas about what movies are okay to watch around small children. Oh yeah, uh, but my mum also had the soundtrack. She had it on tape when she was a teenager and she then, my dad got it on MP3 player for her. Like her old massive like block of an MP3 player um, in the sort of you know, when she first got an MP3 player. So it was, a, it was always a thing in our house. Um, actually I don't think this is necessarily that bad to show someone younger. I mean yeah, you kind of gloss over the sex scene but even then it's mostly just billowing curtains and even the violence doesn't really take place until the end and it's sort of ridiculously campy like shoving a vampire in a, a bath full of holy water and garlic and then all the pipes everywhere in the house like the sinks they just start exploding with blood and the toilet blows up because there's so much blood i'm like how was the piping system in this house set up 
That I I was more, you know, confused as to why the toilet was exploding and the sink in the kitchen on the other side of the house was going kaboom. Wait, this is what bothered you about the film? Well, also the really long focus on the, the teenage, like the 14-year-old boy in the bath. Uh, so I think we should just dive into that entire subtext. So um, Michael and Sam are the brothers. They're played by Jason Patrick and Corey Haim. And Corey Haim spends this entire film dressed like like a background character in Miami Vice, but in a scene where they're all in a, night, a gay nightclub. With maybe like he's got the blazers. He's got like the checkered colored shirts. He's clearly like slicked his hair back. Um, he does seem to have just fallen off the set of a totally different movie. Uh, I think they try to spin him as being like from the the cosmopolitan central of um, Phoenix, Arizona, which is where the family have moved from. But you know, I, that seems like a bit of a stretch. I think it's just Corey. <laughs> I was um, having, I was sort of imagining a young uh, Zach from Saved by the Bell if he was sent. Yes. Okay, now I want so much now I want Zach from Saved by the Bell as a vampire hunter in the middle of fight. Time out. <laughs> um. So basically, the relationship between Michael and Sam in the beginning, they're they're pretty close. Um. You know, they sort of pal around with each other, they joke around. So it makes it more clear when Michael sort of falls in with the vampires and starts to become more moody and distant you know, hey, another, you know, metaphor going on there is vampirism for adolescents uh, we'll get to that later uh, but there's a number of scenes that hint further at the gay subtext beyond the kind of slightly too close relationship with his brother uh, there's obviously the scene where Corey Haim is in the bath um, it's singing along to, I can't remember what it is, but he, he's giving it a really good go, and then there's a moment where uh, his his grandfather keeps giving him taxidermied animals like you do <laughs> so he puts them in the cupboard but on the door of the cupboard that he puts it all in is a poster of Rob Lowe and it's one where he's like tugged up his vest to expose his chest yeah I, I was like okay that's a teen girls poster and they tried to or offset a it a little because if you look in the background he's got a poster of a like a woman's like bare legs and a pair of heels in front of a car which is obviously the kind of poster you'd probably more expect in a teenage boy's room but you, that's not the thing you focus on the thing you focus on is Rob Lowe <laughs> I was just like okay that, that was. I mean I'm imagining that's the type of poster a girl who was having who's like realising she's attracted to girls like no I'm not see look I've got a picture of th- this is on my wall see I'm totally straight I'm like no honey in this case, I'm not even sure what's going on with that poster. <laughs> I think that's just Jill Schumacher having fun, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, he was a production designer. But there also is the, uh, the the tension between Jason Patrick and Kiefer Sutherland. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's sort of offset by Star. She's kind of the proxy, but they also spend so much of the film kind of staring daggers at one another that you can't help but think... Uh, yeah, th- th- there's something going on there. If this were being released today, there would be so much slash fic which ignores Star's existence completely and or kills her off horribly. Oh yeah, and Candice Rises hasn't had some sort of resurgence in fandom. I think just because it's so 80s. Like, even like you can't make them all look good. I'm sorry. They just cannot be done. 
Nope. There's just so much mullet. Like, okay, you know how Labyrinth should the, the billing should be David Bowie, Jennifer Connelly, David Bowie's crotch. <laughs> yeah. Be like, the, the mullet yeah, should be getting. Yeah, the yeah. mullet should be getting billing. I mean, it certainly has more of a you know screen time than the other chick apparently in the Lost Boys. Wait, who's the other one? Uh, it's in there. It's uh, what's her name? Uh, the. Uh, so there's a there's another girl in there. I know, right? Oh no, <laughs> right? I um, barely know it's her. Yeah. Uh, so I think she's one of the other vampires, but um, she has a role. There's actually Kelly Jo Mintner as Maria, and she's cut from the film, but she's in the opening credits anyway. She appears like over Lucy's shoulder in the video store. Yes, I'm reading this off TV tropes, <laughs> but she's still in the opening credits. I didn't even notice her. <laughs> Egg. I, I remember going, hey, wait, wasn't there another vampire chick? But um, that was about it. Oh, well, um, I think it's clear where Schumacher's focus lies. And it's not necessarily uh, in the girls. Because, <laughs> like, Star is a... Oh, I mean, her her dynamic is interesting. You know, why, why is it that the only one in the sort of main hub of vampires who is really resisting giving in is the woman although there is also the the young boy that they're with who's about eight or nine by the looks of it uh, dressed exactly like <laughs> but dressed exactly like he for Sutherland um, but we, we really don't get that much beyond her partly because Jamie Garrett's constantly plays her like she's half asleep which I think may have been a conscious choice but I don't know well considering sometimes she's actually being picked up and carried around while she is asleep <laughs> Um, there is that. There's a lot of the damsel sort of imagery going on there because she does spend so much time being sort of hoisted around by Jason Patrick. Yeah. I mean, my thought was that she was the newest inductee until Michael came along. Uh, and so that's why she was sort of resisting. Maybe the rest of the Lost Boys were like, hey, do you think maybe our group's a little gay? Yeah, let's go get a girl. And they pick Star. But because, I mean, we. It's called The Lost Boys. There's obvious Peter Pan sort of references. So I was thinking, okay, if uh, Kiefer Sutherland is the Peter character, uh, spoiler, no, <laughs> uh, then the star is the Wendy. And of course, Michael is Michael, What was the, which is the eldest of the Darling Boys. So that was my thought that they were, you know, she was the first one and then these two were the ones that followed. Makes sense. And that's why she's still able to resist because she's not that much older she's been in there enough long enough that it's getting harder but and maybe the boys she does seem to sort of get in the way a little i mean it's really clear that i think joel schumacher would if he could would just sort of cut her out of the movie altogether but this is 1987 during the height of the aids crisis um turning uh relatively mainstream teen comedy into a massive parable for homosexuality was never gonna fly. Nope. And you could get away with kind of, like, dismissing it in this film because you could just say, oh, it's the 80s. <laughs> you know, gay or the 80s. You decide. Then- um, but there are other elements of that that I found really fascinating. Um, I mean, the entire line when when Michael and David finally kind of have their big fight at the end, the line that David says is, your blood is in my veins, which 
once again, if you're tying that into what's happening in that era in the gay community, it's very tough to ignore. Or if you're not paying attention to that, you think, my blood's in your veins. It's like, yeah, guess what else he wants in him? Okay, I That's what she said. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, look, these are interesting vampires in themselves because they're they're kind of the basic design, but there's no biting. It's an uh, well, there is biting, but that's kind of the second step. I mean, you need to feed, but you can basically the the, the initiation it comes from drinking my uh, David's blood, but it's in a bottle, and he's even told that it's blood by Star, and then he just kind of shrugs it off, and it's like, no, no, I got to impress the gra- the guys. <laughs> Gotta show off to the bros, you know? Um, Even after all the weird shit... But these vampires, they... um, These vampires, they they can fly. They have fangs, but they're the the second two top teeth. Which is kind of like the the fang layout on True Blood. Uh, They have some level of mind manipulation powers, or at least David does, as he likes to fuck around with Michael, when they're eating Chinese food, by making him look at rice and sea maggots and look at noodles and sea worms. It's interesting that these vampires can also eat human food. Um, they also hang upside down from the ceiling with their with transformed feet, which I thought was pretty neat, actually. Uh, I mean, they're an interesting kind of hybrid of what you expect, and then stuff I think was just more convenient for plotting. Like, because mostly they just seem like dicks like they're just bratty teenagers who have all the things that you you're terrified about t- uh, bratty teenagers actually having like what happens if all those kids that are constantly roaming around your area not going away would actually eat you this is definitely sort of a, a vampire that is distilled from a lot of other things like or in one that you'll see that again Turner has influence I mean we've got the face we've got the drinking from the fancy drinking chalice or in this case it's a fancy bottle uh, we've got the you must kill to complete the, the transformation. There seems to be no, not like in other things such as, say, the Vampire Diaries, where if you don't feed within a certain time, the transformation kills you instead. There doesn't seem to be any sort of time limit like that or nothing we know about. Because if our Star has been fighting this for quite some time, it's clearly not a choose pretty quickly what your options are going to be. Uh, we see the transformation of the face. Garlic doesn't work. You must invite, be invited in. But if you are, in, well, you don't have to be invited in. But being invited in grants you special powers over that house, or rather negates a lot of the other issues with the sanctuary of the home. Which is an interesting take on it. Yeah, uh, basically, we we know about this basically because the vampires have to keep telling them, look, you guys aren't very good at this because there are two vampire hunters who are basically LARPers who have never actually done any proper training. Um, they're the comic book guys, but, um, geek level, but never with any real life experience, called Edgar and Alan Frog, get it? Played by um, Corey Feldman and Jameson Newlander, who basically work in the local comic book store where their par- are their parents just asleep. Possibly drugged. They look like hippies. Because I kept thinking of, you know, in Men in Black, the like the kind of dummy human that the dog gets to pretend to be his owner while he's working. <laughs> I, I think they may have just been asleep. Like, this town seems to operate on a nocturnal schedule anyway. 
Like there, it's, a, it's, a, it's mentioned that the unemployment is rife. Um, Michael's looking for work. Says, is there any work? And once again, there's nothing legal. So it would make sense that everyone pretty much does what they do at night here. So they, they, they're, they're not night owls, I guess. Uh, but Edgar and Alan meet Sam and basically give him a vampire comic and tell him, you know, keep an eye out. Uh, but when it comes to them actually kind of going into practice, they're clearly really excited to have an opportunity to do this, but then they kind of realize that they're not very good at it. Um, <laughs> which is very funny. And the way that they try to, to brush it off with things like, at the end, when the head vampire does say, never invite a vampire into your home, it renders you powerless. Because did you know that? And they go, yeah, of course. Everyone knows that. Oh, bless. It's all about, still all about the male ego. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've got all their stakes and stuff, but they're actually too afraid to use them. Yeah, they have this big, yeah, epic thing, and then they're just filling up these tiny little squirt guns. Honestly, I think you would have been better off with water bombs. Yeah, but needs must. How would you be able to fill up the water bomb in the tap if it's not holy water already? You know, you got to think about these things. Get a priest. Duh. <laughs> You know, there didn't seem to be a lot of, um, you know, welcoming priests in this area. So I think it was just that guy that was giving the church reception. Yeah. But anyway, um, what I, I what I like about those two characters, I mean, it's prime Corey Feldman, you know. So there's that, which is always really funny. Um, but before it became very, very tragic. Uh, but I just love the idea that. These two guys seem to be the only people in town who know that there are vampires, or at least are trying to help other people acknowledge that there are vampires, but they're just really, really bad at it. And it's not until this new kid comes along and he has to, you know, really try. Uh, And he has an incentive to try, which is basically he doesn't want his brother to die. That they kind of kickstart their their escapades but even then they're you know it's all talk and no trousers but that's the thing is as well is like this entire town is basically dominated by the adolescent id i mean the title of it is the lost boys it's you know peter pan reverence obviously um but it's a sort of you, you, the whole dynamic of this town is it's very adolescent run like everyone at these parties and like the dance and the concert where the well-oiled saxophone player is everyone seems to be a teenager um but there are also the other teenagers who aren't allowed to be part of that which is the 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 vampire the vampires themselves who are constantly getting kicked off the the santa carla boardwalk because they've been banned for causing trouble and then you're like see if you didn't cause trouble you wouldn't be banned but of course, you're teenage assholes, so it's it's sort of uh, Neverland meets Sunnydale. You know, it's not got the shiny, happy front of Sunnydale, but they've got the you know the the ridiculously high mortality rate and the teenagers doing stuff while the adults have no idea what's going on. But it's interesting that these vampires are portrayed explicitly as still being mentally adolescent. So the assumption is that they have been turned quite recently, but then he mentions the head vampire, uh, spoiler alert, it's Edward Herman, mentions that he's been looking for sort of a mother for these boys for a while now. Uh, so maybe they just 
are mentally stuck in that place forever. That seems to be the implication, which, man, could you imagine being 17 for the rest of your life? Uh, Bella Swan can. Oh, but she's so ancient now that she's 18. Fucking decrepit hag. <laughs> um, but just remember, this is Lost Boys, that you never grow up. They're, they're stuck. They're never growing up. So I guess they would need a mother in that aspect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well- uh, I do think that um, that is an interesting dynamic that they have the idea that there is this kind of scornful father because every time that you see them with him up to that point, he's basically telling them off. Yep, you've been told you're not allowed to come here and they just sort of me, me, me and, and leave. Yeah. <laughs> That seems to be the reactions a lot of the time, actually, because uh, when uh, Michael sort of first goes along with them, he's like, what's going on? He goes, oh, Michael wants to know what's going on. Who does Michael does? What's going on? Who said that? And it's like, oh, you guys are so immature. I've had so many conversations with boys that are like that as well. It hurts too much. Yeah. Well, as I said, it's the Lost Boys. Peter Pan references abound. And so when I was watching it, I'm like, okay. Okay, so original dynamic, maybe you've got a, a Peter in Keeper Sutherland, you've got a, a Wendy in Star, a weird change, who, someone who didn't realize that Michael and Wendy were sisters, <laughs> Michael, or at least, you know, the, the attachment. And then, okay, it's like, okay, creepy wannabe stepdad dude, clearly is going to be the Captain Hook because, you know, Captain Hook and... Uh, Mr. Darling, played by the same actor kind of thing. Yes, if you watched Peter Pan and didn't realize it was Jason Isaacs' both roles, you do now. Which is tradition. That's part. That was always something that Peter Pan did. Exactly. And then, of course, when it got to the end, okay, I was like, okay, who's going to be the head vi- vampire? It could be Keeper Sutherland they're going to play, you know, entirely straight. But I, I'm like, okay, they've been a bit too clever about it, so clearly it's not going to be him. Possibly with the fact they've only got one girl and everything else is so male-centered. Possibly we're going for a, a brother's tale of two sons kind of thing where the uh, the girl is secretly the monster and the villain, you know. She's playing at being the, the, the tag along, the new one, the one who wants to be saved. That, you know, to find the one worthy of, you know, being, ruling alongside her, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, okay, that your third option then is is Captain Hook. Captain Hook then turned out to be Peter Pan, wanting a mother for his children. But Peter, Captain Hook had weird issues around Wendy as well. So, who? And then I was like, okay, maybe Grandpa will turn out to be a vamp- the head vampire. But then I'm just like, no, that's just too much like that Treehouse of Horror episode. <laughs> well, this predates that. <laughs> I know, I'm just like, hmm. It was like, well, Treehouse of Horror had to get it from somewhere, right? <laughs> Surprisingly, never did a Lost Boys episode. Actually, um, I love the setting of this movie. Like it's it's called the Santa Carla Boardwalk, but it's actually the Santa Cruz Boardwalk. You know, that's a real place you can still go visit. But it's uh, the way that they they portray it is that it is the the murder capital of the world or of America. Uh, which is actually tied to the the real history of Santa Cruz and in the 70s in the 80s uh, Santa Cruz was nicknamed Murderville USA because it was an area where 
three really infamous serial killers, Edmund Kemper, Herbert Mullen, and David Carpenter, were finding and hunting their victims. So it would make sense that this would be a really good place to be a vampire, because one of the first things that we see uh, when the family arrive in Santa Carla are like countless missing posters. They're everywhere. And they're constantly being put up and people are putting up new ones over old ones. You know, kids seem to wander around this area kind of lost constantly anyway, even during the day. There's this massive fairground and there's all this fun going on, but around it the place is just kind of falling apart and people are going missing and no one seems to care. Basically, Sucksville. <laughs> Sucksville. But it's an interesting setting to have a, a really... um. I wouldn't say an urban setting. I mean, it, we don't really see the city. We, we we just see the boardwalk area that they live in, and um, the Emerson family kind of live on the on the outskirts of town in what you know the 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 house full of nightmares. Um, I, I will say I love their grandfather. I think he's hilarious. I, Read I, the TV I, guide. You don't need a TV. Yeah. Um. I I was just like okay. Grandpa just gave his son, who has the sexy Rob Lowe poster on the wall, a beaver. Is he trying to tell him something? He went and shoved the beaver in the closet. He can't sleep with the closet door open. <laughs> Sometimes it's not really subtle. None of like, this film is subtle. There's no subtext. This is text. Like, it makes Herbert von Krolock subtle. And I'm oh yeah, the one where he's in the sparkly purple outfit. Excuse me, did you see the shirtless, well-oiled guy in the saxophone? Herbert von Krolock probably did. <laughs> that guy, by the way, used to perform on stage wearing nothing but a leather g-string. With Cher? Uh, not with Cher. With Carly Simon, though. Uh, I'm just gonna say Cher would have would have done it. Oh, Cher would have had him down to nothing. She would have had him wearing, like, a sock, Red Hot Chili Pepper style. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking up the Wikipedia entry for this guy, by the way. And it says, yes, he is known for his musical performance in the film The Lost Boys. He is notable for his muscular physique, his sexually provocative movements during his performances, and for his tendency to perform shirtless, with his skin oiled and with his hair in a ponytail. So that... <laughs> That's a process. But that's okay. the entire the entire mood of the piece could be summed up with like baby oil. You know, everyone is dressed to the nines for what would be prime nineteen eighty seven fashion. You know, they've got the jewelry, they've got the hair, they've got the sort of weird leather outfit combinations. They're always wearing sunglasses, uh, or at least Jason Patrick is, or even Star Her Star herself is more sort of boho in style. But even then, it's more like what the eighties what boho bohemian was. Like it is a film so rooted in aesthetic. So I can see why some people think... I mean, it has aged pretty badly in terms of the style. I still find it an incredibly enjoyable film. But this is not a film that you could ever confuse for every, any other era. It's like if the 80s ate the 80s and then puked up the 80s on the 80s. I mean, the only thing that was missing was like the flock of seagulls hair. I feel like if you'd given them time, someone would have turned up with that. Uh, so... I mean, we've talked about how manly this movie is and in multiple definitions of the, the idea of manly, mostly in the idea of 
men with men or men wanting to be men or wanting to be with men this movie gay um being blood-sucking feminists we do have to talk about the ladies i know some people accuse us us of only objectifying the men don't worry we appreciate women too and people of other genders or people without gender uh and so we need to talk about the other major female character in this movie lucy god damn it can there be a vampire movie where the target of a but the female target of a vampire is not called Lucy. I mean, come on. Unless it's actually Lucy Westenra or some variation of Lucy Westenra, can we stop it? I honestly don't think that level of thought went into this. I think they just picked a name Lucy. <laughs> um, I'm just like, oh, come on. I mean, I love the Mothiris. Okay, and that is kind of like a Dracula meets Carmilla sort of mashup in the 70s, which works as terrible as the the idea sounds when i put it together but come on guys come on guys but apart from that i really liked uh, lucy as a character i mean she's she's being she, she's made a choice and she's trying to do the best by her kids uh it sounds like she's trying to be cheerful about the divorce and her situation even though it sounds like in the brief moments it's discussed that the husband was actually a bit of an asshole like she talks about not fighting him over the divorce, and I'm just thinking, okay, this is because the guy was going to make it a lot worse. I think we know we've heard of that sort of guy. Clearly. Yeah, I mean, in '80s films, like a lot of these kind of you know teen comedies and teen you know dramas and stuff, the the mother tends to be a scold or a shrew or just generally kind of a drag. And I hear I wouldn't say that she is. I mean, she's trying very very hard to be optimistic she clearly loves her kids she clearly gets on really well with them up until the whole vampire thing but she clearly gets frustrated with them and you know she just like you see you feel like when she's not on screen you can see what she's doing living her life and just trying to get by which involves like going to work in the video store with max and then occasionally going on a date with him I will get to Max later, but I I enjoyed that dynamic, um, and, and also I just love Diane Weist because like she was in basically every movie in the eighties. She was in Footloose. She was in a bunch of Woody Allen movies. Uh, she's in Parenthood, which is one of my favorite movies. She's in Edward Scissorhands. Like you can't miss her. You'll have seen her before. Like remember, this is a two-time Oscar winner. Oh yeah, remember and she was- had an Oscar by the time she did this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like, um, but compare her to the mother in our other sort of 80s vampire film, uh, Bright Night. She has an actual presence. She's not seen as a, a, a burden or a problem or just something to be ignored. She, she's a character. She has her own motivations and stories. She gets along, as you said, she gets along well with her children her children have, like, really no issues with the... I mean, they don't like the idea of going to Santa Carla, but clearly they, they love their mother and are loyal enough to their mother to not be massive, massive dicks about it. Like, there's some dickishness, which is... But it's really... you like, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, kids. But she's a mother that 
you know, they talk about protecting him, their mother. Uh, when the younger, when Corey's character, the younger son, is upset, he's like, "Can I stay with you?" And she's like, "Absolutely fine." There's like, there's like nothing. Like she, she is a part of their life, and they accept it. It's not, she's not like so many parents in semi-modern YA novels, where she's a burden to be got rid of and is absent the entire film because that would be easier. She's not like grandpa just wandering off to uh, flirt with the widow and or make beavers to give to his 14-year-old grandson. No, there's a really strong, you know, generational dynamic there that does seem much more rooted in sort of love and affection than so many of these films are, where they're just looking for a kind of convenient scapegoat or antagonist. So I appreciated that, because they, they, they didn't need to do that with her. They so easily could have just, you know, had her, you know, turn up now and then and sort of shake her finger at him and, you've been all day sleeping in bed and why are you <coughs> like this? Which is just a lot less interesting. Yeah, she... I'm sorry, let me just restart for my... Stop coughing. Like, when she says... When the kids try and tell her about the vampires, she's like, okay, come on. And she tells them off about it. She she really has no reason to believe that there are vampires. So when her kids come up to her and talk about vampires and murder, it's just like, yeah, she is coming from the appropriate spot there. We know better. The kids know better. But based on the information she has, she's right. This is not like, you know, Billy from next door stole my stuff and she's going, oh, Billy's such a nice boy. This is more like Billy next door is a vampire. And she's going, uh, vampires aren't real. Stop playing your silly game. And the interesting element with her is how much she ends up being a crucial part of their ultimate plan, which is basically that Max needs... Clearly he wants a companion, but he also desires some sort of mother figure for these vampires. Uh, I think Diane Weiss would make an awesome vampire anyway. But I, I like that that was the twist. It had nothing... Like, they really don't give a shit about the kids. The kids were the tool to get to her. Yeah. Or, you know, Michael is not that special. <laughs> yeah, or if it wasn't that case, it was just more like, huh, the, the two storylines just happened to collide. Pretty much. And that's really fascinating. I mean, the only reason, and she's ready to do it, not especially willingly, but she is, you know, she's someone who is basically kind of defined as partly by the, the sacrifices she's had to make for her children. And what, what is the ultimate sacrifice she could make? Which is, yeah, just handing herself over to this guy. Um, don't worry. It, you know, it does have one of my favorite end lines in any film when, when the grandpa, <laughs> who is this sort of like, you know, slightly doddering old crank barges through in his car or his truck I think it is Grandpa X um, impales Max on all of the antlers that are just conveniently around his house he goes to the the, um, the fridge gets himself a beer and says one thing I never could stomach about Santa Carla all the damn vampires <laughs> it's like Grandpa you could have been a little more helpful with this whole situation I mean, there's a whole world you could probably get into there. Like, what's his backstory? What the hell has he been doing in Santa Carla before these guys turned up? This is what happens when Giles just sort of give, stops giving a shit. He just starts giving Zach Which I enjoy, which I appreciate. That was fun. But it's like, yeah, Grandpa, you could have been a lot more helpful. You could have at least said, no, daughter, please don't come to the murder capital of the world. 
which he seems really unbothered by as well because he is asked by uh, Sam you know is this the murder capital of the world and he goes well let me put it this way if all of the dead bodies in Santa Clara were to rise up you'd have a hell of a population problem it's like damn it grandpa look as long as he's got his TV guide his beer and his Oreos he is fine but going back to Lucy as I said we've discussed the, the, the Peter Pan aesthetic and how she is the true Wendy of the story not star or any other character and that Max is Peter Pan's and Captain Hook because you know daddy mummy issues um, it, it really is that you, you think okay Peter Pan is the story about the boys it's not remember who's our central character in Peter Pan well our, our the, the character we follow that we watch the one that we are most like as a reader we are not Peter Pan, we are Wendy. And that's who the story revolves around. It is interesting that the sort of the sole woman of Peter Pan um from the real world, you know, is defined ex- explicitly as a mother figure, not just by the Lost Boys, but even in her her own life, her job is basically to be the babysitter to her to her brothers. So at least with this version of Wendy with Lucy, she's an actual adult and a real mother anyway. That doesn't excuse, like, just sort of trying to reduce her simply to, though this is a role that you can do in my life, but it is interesting that that's what they, well, that's what Max sees in her when they, when they first meet. Because the first time that we see, Lu- he sees Lucy she's sort of going around town looking for a job and she sees a little boy's lost and sort of brings him into the shop wondering if his mum's in there. You know, it's a very brief moment of peril for this kid then the mum finds him, but clearly, like, that is enough for him to say, oh, she seems like she's got some basic human instincts. She could make a good mother to the vampires. Yeah, well, that thing, the first thing he sees of her is a woman who immediately thinks of somebody else. You know, she- She's just good-natured and sweet and immediately thinks about doing the right thing and looking after this person who needs looking after. He just he sees, as we see, so many vampires seem to want to have or destroy or keep forever. The good, she's the good soul. You know, his first, the first thing he sees is this goodness, this, this niceness, nothing... There's no facade. There's no, I'm putting on an act. This is just a woman who's doing the right thing or what she perceives to be the right thing just because nobody else is. It's just her deepest instinct to go around and be nice and be helpful and sweet. Partly because she has to be. It sounds like she's been sort of downtrodden on her life so much that, you know, being a sort of, you know, perpetual pleaser is just the easiest way to avoid conflict. Well, what does her father say to her? She's the only woman who didn't better her life by getting a divorce. So she probably was very reliant on the husband for most things. Otherwise, she would have stayed in her location, not had to pack up her few things to go live with crazy beaver stuffing dad dad and the murder capital of the world. When you're left with very few options, you've got to make the most of it, you know? There aren't many options for her, but she's going to... She's going to make it work. Yeah, I mean, so she's, she's a grown woman, and where does she just, you know, she goes looking everywhere for a job. Like, you know, she has no hesitation about working in a video store. 
Like, I'm sure... But that's the thing, the fact that she even gets a job, I mean, partly it is just out of the, the, the kindness of Max, but there there seem to be very few opportunities in this... What looks like... To, which is weird, it seems to be a really thriving area. Um, It's very... It, you'd assume it's very tourist driven but it mostly just seems to be locals that hang out in this place and there's just a lot of locals going to this you know the well-oiled saxophone players party and things maybe so the the economics of this town are interesting maybe it's sort of a panamitic like how much does max own he seems to be the the big guy in town <coughs> maybe it's sort of a bit of a panamitic kind of situation we know everything sucks but if we you know party and have fun we can pretend that it's that it doesn't suck, you know, entertain the masses so they don't realize how horrible their life is. But then again, you you know, nobody seems to make a big fuss out of, well, I mean, there's missing posts everywhere, but you'd think all those missing things, the, you know, people would have come in, the, the authorities would have come in. Or something would be happening there rather than absolutely nothing. You've got kids eating out of a garbage truck, out of garbage cans. And actually going back to Lucy, What's one of the earliest things we see to her? Telling her kids to go give some money to those kids eating out, or some food to those kids eating out of the trash cans. Like, she doesn't have much. She has basically what's in her car and her two boys. But what does she think about? The children that are digging through the trash cans looking for something to eat. Like, that is her, her first instinct on arriving in town. Yeah, she seems to be one of the few sort of, like, generally decent people in this town but we really don't see that much of it we only really communicate with the vampires in that aspect everyone else just seems to be going on all the theme park rides and getting piercings and stealing shit from the comic book store which probably makes her stand out all the more she hasn't been beaten down by Santa Carla life or even the life that she came from yes she's very Mike meek very Mike very meek and mild but that that goodness in her, that 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 genuine capacity for human kindness and things like that, has still not been beaten out of her. The light that can't be extinguished, basically. So it's interesting that Max's response to that is, "Yep, I'm going to crush, kind of crush that, basically." Well, the kindness is why I need her, but yeah, in order to to get what I want, basically, going to have to destroy her. Notice that him turning her is through biting. I mean, with Michael, it's through drinking of blood through the bottle, but with with uh, Lucy, Max is just ready to bite her. So is that just a power that he has because he is the head vampire? Or does um, David just enjoy the drama of having his wine bottled for consumption? Or maybe they didn't want to have a bunch of dudes biting each other on the neck. Well, maybe. Um... But what's interesting is when we see them attacking other humans, we don't really see the biting so much. We see the fabulous kind of crane shots that are imitating, from their point of view, flying down, tearing the roofs off cars and like pulling these humans up to kill them. But it's never really shot in a clear way where you can see what's happening. You don't even get it's much more suggestive than that. You don't even get a big spray of blood everywhere. Which, I, honestly, I was expecting, you know, something out of a Jurassic Park type movie. Or just, you know, the spray of blood across the car. Uh, maybe it's also because if you look at uh, David uh, versus Max, uh, one of them's all about, you know, the showmanship and the drama. The, the adolescent posing 
Whereas Max is an adult. He knows he doesn't have to put on all those airs or all that drama to be the le- to be the one in charge. It's the the child the, the child playing as adult and really wanting to show how old they are versus the person who doesn't have to show off their wealth or their power. So by having a fancy wine bottle, look, I'm old enough to drink. You also add a ritualistic element to it, whereas Max is just like, whatever. He doesn't need to have his cult as much, you know. David has his cult of personality sort of thing around him with his crew. The, the loyalty, the leadership, whereas Max is a, a dad who's just like, yeah, I made you. God damn it, clean your room. That is really interesting. I mean, these the younger vampires are obsessed with aesthetic, not just in what they wear or how they do their hair, but where they live. Like, their lair is an old, like, elite nightclub, sort of gentleman's club area from the early 19th, early 20th century that was destroyed in an earthquake because it's on the fault line. And they've sort of thrown around a couple decorations and also put up this giant honking Jim Morrison poster. <laughs> because, again, subtle. I mean, remember as well that in Vampire Chronicles, when Lestat becomes a rock star, the rock star that he's basically supposed to be is Jim Morrison. So there's already that kind of witchy vampire element with him anyway. And also Jason Patrick has the... Like, like the slightly more mullety version of the Jim Morrison haircut. Yeah, it's like, God damn it, Jim Morrison keeps showing up in all the vampire things. Um, but none yeah, of the music in this film is anything remotely close to the doors. It's very 80s. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, going back to why did... Why was Max gonna bite Lucy? It's that whole immortal marriage concept. You know, the the, the physical drawing of blood from a from the from the pure woman the you know you will be mine forever because remember he's not he may talk about looking for a mother but where does that put lucy in relation to him remember we are mother and we are father and peter pan peter pan decided he was going to play father and so he and wendy would play act father and mother but peter also has no real intention of play acting as father because he doesn't understand what that role is exactly but Whereas Max, being an adult, sort of does, and going back to the creepy, creepy um, Captain Hook. But he enjoys the authority as well. Like, Captain Hook wants nothing to do with the kids. He wants them gone. Where, so he is more like... He is. He has basically that, that, that dynamic, as you mentioned, in, in the book and in performances of it, where, you know, Mr. Darling and Captain Hook are played by the same actor, but there is obviously more giddiness at the prospect of the power. Because... Mr. Darling is basically a snobby scold. He's not an especially interesting character. He's just kind of a drag, as your typical Victorian father figure is. Then he literally goes to gets in the doghouse. Oh, we should talk about the dog. <laughs> Dogs. Yeah. Dogs. So uh, there are um, there are, the, the dogs are kind of like guardians for the vampires are also protectors against them oh nanook nana mm-hmm i just it just hit me uh, uh so one of the dogs is a beautiful uh, it's a oh i've forgotten the name of the breed it's a alaska a husky i think it's a husky or it's somewhere in that 
family, isn't it? I think he's a husky. Well, he's a but he's definitely pretty. supposed to be wolf-like in characteristic. Yeah. He's called Nanook, which is, you know, very famous. Uh, ma- very... So Nanook, you know, uh, Master of Bears, Nanook of the North, historical documentaries and places in... Uh, okay, cut that whole thing because I've just wandered off there. Uh, he's, he's a... So... The, so our human family has a dog, beautiful, probably a, a husky. It's one of those very wolf-like, snow-type dogs. So I don't know why this dog is like in California, uh, called Nanook. And I just realized that that name kind of, kind of has a similar sound to Nana in Peter Pan. Which is the dog that was the protector and nanny of the darling children. And when the vampires show up, Nanook also is a protector like Nana was. Whether that was intentional, who knows? But I think it's an interesting thing to just sort of light bulb. Do you want to go back to the role of dogs in sort of vampire mythology? That's one that's often overlooked as well. I mean, the association of animals we have with vampires tends to be bats obviously but if you read dracula actually dracula can take various forms one of them happens to be this kind of wolf-like dog well, and also children of other things but you know the children of the night what music they make or such music they make whatever the exact quote is and then of course there's the whole escaping of the wolves from the from the zoo in london wolves and then there's the black dog that come you know that comes off the demeter so dogs and vampires have a long history together like, also going back to cats, because remember, Carmilla could turn to a cat. Uh, but dogs have a lot of history with fae. They have a uh, history of either being fae or chasing, you know, being monsters or chasing off monsters. Uh, also, there is a movie called Vampire Dog. Of course there is. Because I just Googled you know, vampire dogs, just or vampire and dogs, just, you know, because whatever. And all I got was hits for the movie Vampire Dog. Of course it's Canadian. Is uh, there anything else we want to talk about? Uh, well, the do- role of dog is protector versus dog is, well, dog is two other people's protectors. So, but we have two dogs in the, sh- in the movie, Nanook and Max's dog. Both of them are protectors. One is a protector from vampire. The other is a protector of vampires. And also Nanook is a total badass. When the the Frog Brothers are are trying to fight a vampire and failing miserably, it's Nanook to the rescue, shoving the vampire back in the bathtub. It's also Nanook who protects... uh, who protects from turning to a vampire Michael... It's basically Nanook to the rescue. I will say that the entire um, final battle at the end, which is basically if Home Alone was about vampires, um, has some classic comedy moments. (laughs) Well, there's the moment where Sam uh, shoots one of the vampires with an arrow and it fires him back into his stereo collection. 
where the music kicks up and then his response is death by stereo. Like, clear, I think the only thing that the Frog Brothers really do is they've already prepared their quips for the deaths. <laughs> like, yeah. that's the area where they're the most effective. I'm, I'm just imagining them spending like two hours getting ready for the fight with the actual weapons and things like that. And the next six are just like, okay, so if we kill the vampire with this, we say, thanks a lot. Yeah, they went all out. I mean, they really hammered it home. (laughs) They're all about branding rather than the actual success. They're the Beats headphones of vampires. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they're just as obsessed with aesthetic as everyone else is in this film. The only problem is they're also supposed to be the how people, you know? Don't ask me how. I'm not the how. I'm just here to you know, make sure it looks good. Because they spend the entire film, like, walking around brooding, like, these, you know, hard-living, life-worn, bittered, seasoned vampire hunters. And it's like, you guys are, like, what, 16, maybe? You're one of the Corys, man. You're not that hard. (laughs) Yeah. This is two years after Stand By Me, which is one of my favourite films. Let me just do the math on that. Uh, so 1987. So yeah, the, uh, by the time the movie came out, they would have been about 16. So they're probably more like 15, maybe a late 14 at best. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not as old as they might be. Yeah. I put them at about 15. And based on some of their maturity, probably more around 14. Yeah. But then again, this is just a whole movie about teenage boys wanting to act awesome and pretending that they're older or cooler than they actually are, wanting to get in with the cool crowd. It's all about putting on the idea of oneself, putting on an idea rather than actually being oneself. Like, David and his friends are all badass and rebels and everything. Michael wants to be one of them, the Frog brothers are acting like they, they think they're the Winchesters from a previous generation, but they're just 15-year-old nerds who like comics and think that they're badass because they're sneaking out of the house while their parents are asleep. Even Max is putting on an, an idea, you know, that the calm, nice guy, the way, guy who was way too nice to your single mom. I mean, he's not here to replace your dad, guys. But they don't seem to really care one. about their dad. Yeah, they, they have they have no... Yeah. Like, I guess the dad was that much of an asshole because they're like, eh, we don't really care about you replacing our dad. Just don't be a dick to our mother. Also, we think you're the leader of the vampires. So the only one who isn't putting on airs or playing a brat is the mother, is Lucy. Like, I think even Grandpa's kind of playing a role, maybe acting a bit more crazy or wacky. Than yeah, I, I think because, you know, maybe that's part of his success story. Nobody's going to go after him if he's just the wacky guy. Who, when he actually knows what's going on. Which has worked out really well for him, but then again, we really don't see him interact with with anything in the town. Like, the joke is that he gets in his car, starts it, turns it off, and says, oh, that's as close as the town as I like to get. Unless he's going off to see the widow. What was her name? What did he call her? Willow? He's going to see the widow Johnson or something? In which case, he's like, oh yeah, I've got to slick back my hair. So basically, put, he's going to Put on some Windex. 
So basically, this is the the the, the father from um, my big fat Greek wedding, just in another universe. <laughs> Next yes. Season. I mean, it works so well for him, apparently. Windex. Yeah, I wonder how effective Windex is against vampires. Well, we never really see that tested out. I imagine that they used a spray bottle to fill it with holy water. And when it was just the leftover Windex in it, the, the trick. It was a bathtub full of Windex. Okay, it's clear we're running out of things to talk about. <laughs> what, you're not interested in Windex? So, so I have to ask if you liked this, because this is oh, such a huge part of my... I mean, this is such a huge part of my life, just because it is one of my mum's favourite films. I've seen it so many times, and, like, no huge chunks of it off by heart. So I was curious as to what it was like for you to come in never having never seen this before. Well, first of all, your mother is way cooler than my mother. Like, I mean, your mother watches things like Interview of the Vampire and uh, Lost Boys, whereas my mother... Starts watching the third Harry Potter film, asks, keeps asking me every five minutes if Lupin is the bad guy, falls asleep halfway into it, wakes up just in time for him to turn to a werewolf and go, is he a bad guy? And we're like, I, I don't even know. Of course, then she asked to Snape a bad guy, and this was around book six, and we're like, we, we really don't know. But anyway, back onto the uh, topic in question. Yes, I enjoyed it. I mean, it is, as I said, if the 80s ate the 80s, then puked up the 80s on the 80s. Uh, and it's a Joel Schumacher film. I did like it. I mean, it's got so much classic things. You can see why it was chosen as one of the influential vampire films for uh, what we do in the shadows. Like, they were literally them mimicking the eating the maggots and the worms thing, except with, like, the camp spaghetti rather than the noodles. And it's very clearly earned a place in the vampire hierarchy of fiction and film. There's so many elements that you see. It's a different view of vampires rather than the, you know, the very classic, well-off foreign gentleman. This is just teenagers as instinct, the teenagers as consumption idea, and just teenagers as monsters. Plus, it has a mother that isn't written off to the side or turned into a horrible bitch, just to make it easier for the plot. So that is always appreciative. The mullet... It's sad that these things oh. are rare, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, she doesn't have a major role in a lot of the movie, but her presence is still felt. She's still around. She's still parenting. And their concerns are for her. She, she's not like, as I said, parents in so many mo semi-modern, semi-modern uh, paranormal YA where the parent is an obstacle to get rid of and so the parents are just basically actively, actively neglectful just so that there is an excuse for the plot to continue on unhindered. I'm thinking of examples but I'm not going to name them. Uh, so yeah, I, I really liked it. I... Do you think it could be remade or should be remade? Because I know... Oh, no, 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 no. Leave this thing as a time capsule of the <laughs> 80s. Like, because if this was made now, they'd all be, like, white boys with cornrows and vape pens listening to Justin Bieber <laughs> and filming YouTube shows. So just leave this as it is. Yeah, and besides, the franchise itself is still active. I mean... 
There's a couple of more films that follow it. There's a comics. Uh, some fans made a video game. Oh, apparently there's the CW is making a Lost Boys TV show. I'll believe it when I see it. Or yeah. don't see it, just hear about it. Well, on the Wikipedia page, it says the CW and Rob Thomas, this is the guy behind Veronica Mars and iZombie, uh, are developing Lost Boys TV series that will be set over 70 years, each season chronicling a decade starting with season one set in 1967 in San Francisco during the Summer of Love. Oh, that, that could was- be quite interesting. I mean, seriously, give this one a shot if you're interested in just seeing something so gloriously of its time. Still enjoyable in many other ways, but just, oh man, the mullets. The oiled up saxophonist. Very well oiled. The beautiful dog. <laughs> the beautiful dog. I admit, I had no idea where this movie was going, so when the, the, um, the security guards had to kick them off the of the merry-go-round, I was just thinking, man, I wonder what a movie would be like about a bunch of really average but an ordinary and mundane vampires trying to keep in check the, the bad ones that are acting up all around, you know, like basically parents versus child and everyone's they're all vampires. You know, like, the teacher and the guy, the little old lady who gardens and volunteers at the library, they're all vampires and they're trying to keep everything under control in their town. And then that guy got eaten. So never mind. You know, you should watch this film if you've ever been interested in seeing if Joel Schumacher's made something good. Because I do think this is a legitimately good movie. Well, and you don't think that Mask of the Red Death costume wasn't good? I know, the the costume is good. I don't think the film is good. <laughs> That's a whole other issue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is just, it's really good fun. It's just over 90 minutes. The soundtrack's really fun. The aesthetic is just so of a, that of a you know, it's it's almost beyond eighties. You know, like if you were to dress up like this for an eighties themed party, people would think you were trying a little too hard. So go off and enjoy. I I don't know which streaming services it's on where you are, but it's pretty easy to pick up. I had it on DVD because it's my mom's. <laughs> I'm just like, imagine you go, Mom, can I borrow your Lost Boys DVD and your Interview with the Vampire DVD? So, thank you for joining us this month on Bloodsucking Feminists. You can prepare for next month's episode if you wish. We will be watching the short-lived Channel 4 drama Ultraviolet. It has nothing to do with the Mia Jovovich movie. I promise you. This one's got Idris Elba in it. It may be reasonably easy to get hold of. It's a pretty little known show, but you can pick it up on DVD pretty cheap if you want. And once again, Idris Elba. Yeah, the moment you said Idris Elba, like, it's, it's popularity is going to go skyrocketing. You know, with all 12 of our listeners. Hi. 12 of our listeners. Excuse me, we have dozens of listeners. Dozens. Tens, even. They, su- they support us in email? <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate all of you these will not understand any of these memes so that's it remember you can catch us on our website bloodsuckingfeminist.com we're on twitter at bloodsuckingfem we're on facebook at bloodsuckingfeminists 
And I'm sure if you Google our name, you'll find people complaining about us and how horribly sexist we are. Sucks to be them. Uh, also, if you have any comments or queries, you can always email us at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That is fangmail with a G because, well, you know the drill by now. I mean, you should know this by now, guys. All 12 of you. So until then, enjoy Ultraviolet. Enjoy Idris Elba. Go and watch all the mullets you can handle in this movie. Or you can just go watch what we do in the shadows again and finally get the references. But until then, don't let the vampires bite. Unless that's your thing. 